Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Advent of Code is currently ongoing, and we are in December, so there's 25 days of the Advent of Code. So if you haven't already joined in on this little seasonal puzzle, uh, it's something a lot of people seem to be getting into and enjoying. And we wanted to share a few resources that we saw around that. Marcelo Dominguez created a live book example template for working on the daily problems. So it's like the template was set up for running tests. And here's where you load in the text for the problem and sets up how to execute it. Looks kind of like a, a good starting point for people who want to do those daily tests in live book. Also, Jose Valin created a repository to share all of the live books he has worked on, not just around Advent of Code. This includes previous talks and everything, but it also includes the Advent of Code from last year, which I think he was doing live on YouTube as a daily thing. So some of those are available too. We've included a link to some solutions as well in case you want to check out how other people are solving some of these problems. All right, next up, uh, Explorer version 0.4 is out. So Explorer is a NX library. It is a tool for data frames, which if you don't know what a data frame is, we've got a couple episodes on all this with uh, Chris Granger, so you should go check that out. But think spreadsheet formatted data. That's that's the big one. You really got to listen to Chris Granger talk about it back in episode 104 to really wrap your mind around it. But anyway, back to the release. 0.4 is out, and this includes a couple of new tools. Explore.query, which is a new API for writing expressive and performant queries on that data frame data. For example, what you can do now is arrange a data frame. You can filter the data frame. You can mutate or summarize the data frame. So it's a good way to like just go through it, through the data, and, and do something with it. There's also another API called TensorFrame. I'm not going to pretend I know what this is, <laughs> but <laughs> Tensor, I think, is one one bit of uh, data inside of the data frame. Anyway, there's some some new things that you can do there <laughs> as well. Big thanks to Philips and Pio, Richie Vink, and the Wrestler team who uh, really helped get this release out for Explorer. Yeah, I saw they were crediting the Rustler team for helping because they were able to get zero copy updates, which was important for them for performance. That's really cool. And next up, the Nerves website gets a new tips view. So it's actually tips.nervesproject.org. And so it's like right there as a subdomain. So it just includes a number of helpful tips for people creating Nerves projects. I should copy some of that to Elixir, elixirstream.dev. Cool. All right. Also, Jose Valim announced that he was migrating to, I think migrating. I don't know. We'll see what happens. He's not totally leaving Twitter as far as I can tell, but he is migrating most of his conversation over to genserver.social. Uh, we talked about it last uh, episode. Genserver.social is a Mastodon server based on ActivityPub, which is a protocol that lets all these other Mastodon servers and on, on ActivityPub compatible uh, software communicate with each other to get you an experience like Twitter. Along with Jose Volume, I think another number of Elixir folks have shown up over there as well. So if you're interested in trying out the Fediverse, as they're calling it, but you want to focus on the Beam and Elixir, genserver.social seems to be the place where folks are going for the Elixir community. Last episode, we, we had a, a short list of other servers. Go check out the, the new section on there at the beginning of the episode. You will find some other places that you might want to consider as well. And next, Jose Valim is teasing something potentially really big, and it may have already been released by the time you hear this. So we haven't had any teases from Jose in a long time. Like that used to be like a thing that he was doing, just like giving these fun little teases. And he seemed to really be enjoying himself doing that. So <laughs> <laughs> apparently he's he's like, uh, I've been missing out on this and I want to do this again. So he's he's jumped in and, and this is what he says. He says, I'm very excited because if all goes according to plan, this week, we are going to release something huge, never seen before on Elixir or the Beam. And then separately, he posted a little image of a Numbat-inspired image with bees flying overhead in, in a line. So I don't really know what that means, but, you know, I'm sure that won't stop people from guessing. I sense a little bit of Apple marketing here where... <laughs> Everything you do is the for the first time an incredible on the beam <laughs> because it is literally the first time you've done it on the beam. 
I don't know. We'll see. But given that it's the numbat in there, it's probably NX related. I have to figure that it's, yeah, it's got to be something about the, the bees are carrying like little, like little drops of purple stuff, like, a, like Elixir logos. Do you have any guesses what this is? I do not. The interesting thing is if it's around NX, there's a whole area of things that I just don't like with machine learning and all of that whole space. There's a whole bunch of stuff that I just don't even know about to know that that it exists to say, oh yeah, that's an obvious thing that would we were missing on the beam. Yeah. All right. So my my guess with everything being a line in a line like that, it's like a process line. I think it's like getting the pieces of data and and moving it in a in a line. Right. Ignoring the line now. I think it's I think it's more about like a process for for processing data. I guess. <laughs> uh, so might be you know some operational kind of stuff to 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 make interacting with data sets easier that that's my guess i but uh but i don't know i i don't i don't have any inside info <laughs> yeah and any guesses that we make are probably will sound silly because it will probably have already been announced and released by the time that that we uh have this episode go live so if you follow us online we will retweet those things and you can find <laughs> <laughs> and you can find out before it shows up in the next episode all right. Well, next up, uh, Codebeam Lite in Mexico is happening, which is going to be happening on March the 3rd and the 4th next year in Mexico City. It's an in-person event. So I don't speak Spanish, but that's okay because they are accepting talks in both English and in Spanish. So you don't have to know Spanish to go to Mexico City because they're going to have uh, talks for, for English speakers as well. They are also currently accepting talks and looking for any topics on Elixir or, you know, any other part of the beam. So the the deadline for submitting your talk is December 30th, which is just a couple of weeks from now. So uh, you got a little bit of time. But yeah, Mexico City having a code beam light March 3rd through the 4th. And last up is just really a crazy topic. It's not Elixir news specifically. It's tangentially related to Elixir, and we thought it was of importance and interest to people in the community. There's a blog post. If you haven't already seen it kind of blow up on social media, then you should definitely check it out. So what this person did is he wrote a game using chat GPT. So chat GPT is like that's all over the news, right? Like even breaking out of tech news into market watch and Washington Post. So like everyone's talking about chat GPT, like where you can have these conversations and ask it to, you know, write all this text and it and it does a really good job. It's it's uncanny, really. So in this case, a developer had a text-based conversation with ChatGPT and asked it to build an Elixir live view game. So the blog post goes through all of the prompts that he gave to ChatGPT and then he took all the code that it suggested or or the commands that it gave and applied those to the project and then has a repo where these are all being applied. So just as an example, some of these types of prompts that he was saying, like he said, I'd like to start an Elixir Phoenix project called GPT so we can build a game together. I'd like it to use Live View and to not use Ecto. What's the command I should use? And then it gives the mix command for starting the project. Another prompt was, when I click the button, there is a 50-50 chance that either I gain 10 gems or I fall into a pit and die. If I die, the gem counter changes to say, you fell into a pit, you are dead. And then it's generating the live view code with all the templates and everything to actually do this. And then he'd have a follow-up question where he'd you know post the code that it gave him back in and say, change the random chance of death to be 10% and it would do it. And then at one point it even used an older version of the random generating code and it generated a warning. And he set post the code and the warning and says, please fix the warning. And it, it updated the code to fix the warning. So by the end of it, this guy did not write a single line of the code. He applied everything that the chat GPT gave him into a project, actually got it compiling, actually deployed it. So you can actually click and play this little, it's really not a game. It's, it's too simple to be called a game. But the whole point is it built the entire thing and only with some feedback, like he was even able to go in and say, here's the markup and style it like a button and asking it to do it in tailwind styles, which it understood and it did. And then style and then uh, give it some more margin spacing around the button and all that. And the craziest thing is, is it did it. We've got a link to it where you can click and play the little game, if you can call it a game. <laughs> it just made me think like, oh my gosh, like what 
what does this mean for like five or 10 years from now? I cannot fathom. <laughs> this is some, this is some interesting things. Yeah. Uh, more, more generally about the chat GPT thing. Like that's, it's, it was good before. I think this is like technically GPT four or something like that. And, and GPT two came out a, a little while ago and people were amazed by that. And so since then two iterations have come out, like you, you said, it's uncanny. And, and it, I mean, some folks are generating code samples from, from chat GPT and it's like, it's, it looks correct, but like these functions don't actually exist, <laughs> but that's still like very impressive. So taking it out of like Elixir land, like the fact that th this conversation with AI is believable, we're going to have to start being a little bit more conscious about like what we do with this. <laughs> I, I, th I think, I think we're at the point now where we can like just prompt this AI stuff to like generate a paragraph about what I should give as a Christmas gift to my, you know, my spouse or something. And it gives me some suggestions and like, and that's not evil, but like, I should think about this on my own, you know, <laughs> like this AI is not going to know what to get my wife. So maybe you'll have to train the AI on your wife's internet browsing <laughs> history. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that, but maybe I could do something like, yeah, she likes that, you know, and, and, and yes, she likes this item and she likes this item and she likes this one, but doesn't like that. Right. And then get some like interesting, all anyway, it's, Man, the future is going to be interesting with this stuff. We'll see. Yep. I think the coolest part, though, is that it was a live view app and that it, it actually created something that worked and you can go click it and interact with something that was completely computer generated with human feedback and direction. Yeah. And consider that the internet is like 80% WordPress. So if you told it to, to generate a WordPress site, it was like 80% of it. It would have so much more training data on, on that. But this was an Elixir Live View app. So you, you have to know, like, that that's so small in comparison. Uh, that That is amazing. Yeah. Anyway, we'll have to see long-term what happens there. But interesting stuff. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. You know, Live View has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Dave Lucia. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me for the third time. Yay, we've got a return guest and we're always happy to have you. But you've also been making the rounds in many of the podcasts in the Elixir sphere. So that's really cool too. I am uh, thrilled to be here again. I, I love this podcast. I listen every week and I still don't know why uh, everyone made the mistake of inviting me on, but <laughs> Here we are. Well, we're excited to have you because you've created a project that's called Timescale. So there's a thing called Timescale DB, and we want to get your perspective on what this is, why might I want to use Timescale DB, and then this library that you've created to help Elixir projects have a better experience with that. So I'm really excited to talk about that. I know Kate in particular was interested in this topic. Yeah, timescale looks awesome. Let's learn about it. <laughs> <laughs> but before we jump into that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Again, I'm Dave Lucia. I live in Long Island, New York, in a town called Syosset, about 40 minutes outside of New York City. I'm trying to get back into the routine of working because I was I spent last week in Montego Bay, Jamaica, um, drinking pina coladas at 10 a.m. every day. So uh, a little <laughs> bit of a, a shift to, to not doing that every day. And I work at a company called Bitfo. We are a cryptocurrency media company. We operate a few different websites that provide news and evergreen content for people who want to get educated and, and learn and get you know data and rate information about what's happening in the cryptocurrency space. And I work with actually one of the hosts of Thinking Elixir, 
who maybe can reveal themselves. <laughs> yeah. Who is it? Who is it? Is that Mark? Yeah, no, I, I work there now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so it's been it's been really uh, really great. I think I am in my third week now. It's hard to hard to count because Thanksgiving's when it was in the middle of that. But yeah, it's been good so far. Been been loving it. We get to work on some pretty cool stuff. I only had to, to bribe and threaten David several times before he brought me on the podcast for the third time. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's difficult getting you on these things. So you mentioned that Bitfo is in the media space, like talking about what's going on in the cryptocurrency industry and space. So I imagine there's a lot to talk about right now. And just if anyone follows anything around what's happened with crypto and, and all the, the meltdowns. Whatever do you mean, Mark? <laughs> if you follow the space at all, the last three or four weeks have been utter chaos where several big exchanges and big players in the industry just completely imploded and melted down. FTX is one of the bigger exchanges and they're kind of at the, the center of all of this. So there's been a lot of drama, a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt, as they, they like to say, regarding crypto in general. And as a media company, it's actually kind of like a, a, a good thing for us in some ways and that we're kind of trying to educate people and we're trying to provide information. So this is like a high traffic time for us and we're, we're getting a lot of engagement. As for the space itself, who knows You know what, what the future of cryptocurrency and decentralized finance and all these things are, but uh, it's, it's certainly an interesting time to, to follow and to, to pay attention. I'm curious how this company got started. How did you come up? Did you come up with the idea or how did the idea come up of, I want to make a media company and teach people about cryptocurrency? Really good question. So not my idea. Actually, about 10 years ago, I was just moved to New York City and was at a brewery with some friends on a Saturday. Met this couple, Kendall and Tess, and stayed in touch with them throughout the years. Kendall worked in online gambling space. He he built media companies where as gambling was being legalized, he provided content websites where you can, you know, stay up to date with the news on legalization of gambling, on, on where to go and gamble. He was very successful in, in building these big brands that got a lot of traffic and helped drive that traffic to affiliate partners. Also have another co-founder, Mike, and he worked in the online gold and silver where he was kind of trying to do the same thing of capturing you no know, media attention and realized that he could sell gold and silver directly to consumers and built a company called JM Bullion doing just that. So both of them were so successful they they sold their companies in the last couple of years. Kind of both looked at each other and were like, hey, what's next for for me? Kendall had gotten into cryptocurrency back in 2014. I, I believe he was, you know, buying Bitcoin and bought a, a domain, bitcoinprice.com. Along the way, you know, bought a few other domains and just kind of dabbling, hired a developer or two to, to throw a web, WordPress theme together and pull in some data. Once both of them sold their companies, they kind of looked at each other and were like, Kendall's got these domains. What if we put some money into this thing and take our playbook that we've we've done in online gambling, online poker and gold and silver bring this to the cryptocurrency space. So that's kind of how it was born. Like late last year, I came on board last April. First thing to do was to rip out Postgres and <laughs> install some, some Elixir in there. So we've been, we've been working towards building a new platform to, to build on top of. Part of that is data collection. So, you know, we have price data, we have interest rate data. Another part is our content management system and then the, the front ends that user sees. And we've got websites, newsletters, soon to be a podcast. So a lot of fun stuff in there. Hold on. You, you said you, the first thing you did was rip out Postgres? Sorry, WordPress, WordPress, sorry. WordPress, okay. <laughs> no, I installed Postgres. First thing I did is rip out Postgres and reinstall it. <laughs> So I am interested in talking more about Timescale DB, and really, because you're talking about media company, you're talking about right now, there's a lot of media attention in that space, so it's driving a lot of traffic. And I'm really interested to find out how Timescale DB is used. Like, why do people choose to say, oh, I need Timescale TV? Like, that's what I need. What is it that it's doing for you? Really good question. What is Timescale doing for me at a high level? It is storing our time series data and making sure that I can query it effectively, I can store it effectively, and that I can aggregate it uh, effectively. So within that, there's a, there's a lot. 
I know that timescale DB is actually Postgres based. That leads me to think like if I'm wanting to use Elixir, I already have a Postgres adapter. Can't I just use that to talk to timescale DB? Yeah. I gave a talk at CodeBeam America at the beginning of November, and my talk was, was called Accessible Time Series with, with Timescale DB. And the, the key word there is accessible. So if you're working in Elixir, you're probably already using Postgres. When you install a new Phoenix app, that's the default database. Maybe you're using SQLite. Maybe you're using MySQL. But I think the large majority of, of Elixir users are using Postgres already. Timescale DB is what's called a Postgres plugin. The way it works, it is, I think, Rust and C code, and it is compiled as a shared object. So if you're familiar with your, your C linkers and writing native code, you compile a shared object and then you have to link it in to an executable. So this is how it's pulled into Postgres and it's run as Postgres extension, you know, create extension, XYZ, as you would for anything else, with that key part being pulling in that shared object. And what this means is that your Ecto adapter that you use for, for Postgres and all of the SQL syntax that you're used to with Postgres and everything that comes with it, you're good, you're golden. You can use all of your existing tooling. So that's what attracted me to, to Timescale DB in the first place was I want to use Postgres and I already have Postgres in my infrastructure. Timescale is going to give me some superpowers for time series data on top of Postgres. That's great because I can now co-mingle my time series data and my relational data. The interesting thing about Timescale DB is like you said this, it's on top of Postgres, but like once you install it, you still have just regular old Postgres, right? You still can just use Postgres as you would and not use anything in timescale. You still just have Postgres and you can kind of use it in all of a sudden you have this new functionality that you can use in addition to Postgres, but you don't have to use it. You can have a mixture of this new plugin, new stuff that it adds and the old stuff that it doesn't add. Right. And it's really interesting. If somebody's like, oh, I have this really cool time series database, you have to go install it and mount it and spin it up with a new volume and all this, like, I'm never going to do that because I'm just already using Postgres. But the fact that it's just a, an extension and a lot of hosting services like Fly, for example, and just, you could just click a button and, and it's auto linked for you. That would be true for, you know, regular Postgres libraries, but you still got to get that, like he said, a, a shared, you know, a, a linked library in there. And so that's, that's a way that that's a complication for setting up these kinds of databases. I remember with Heroku, even like the extensions that ship with Postgres, but aren't enabled by default. I think back in the day, a UUID one I wanted was, was in the contrib folder with an old Heroku Postgres free database. You couldn't enable any extensions there. And so not only that, but with timescale, it doesn't ship with Postgres. So you have to go and fetch it, <laughs> install it, and then configure Postgres. So like there is a little bit of a of a road to get that turned on. So I don't know if all managed services, you know, make that make that necessarily easy. I don't recall Fly having that easy to set up either. I'm not sure what the status is for extensions. It hasn't always been easy, but recently they added a command where you just say, these are the shared libraries I want. Oh, really? And then they just magically exist. Oh, that's interesting. Mark? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know? Okay. <laughs> we just installed it recently. It worked. Sweet. So when I look for a database solution, I'm I'm making sure that the operational pieces are, are covered. It's one thing to just deploy a database, but you also want to make sure that it's very durable, that there's point in time snapshotting, that there's all of the things that can CYA, so to speak, in case something goes really, really wrong. So we deploy Timescale in Timescale Cloud. And what this means is that it's running in Timescale's infrastructure and we connect to it right now over the open internet. But if you're running in AWS or GCP, you can VPC peer to the database. You can run it all within, not the same network, but kind of hidden outside of the open internet. So there's there's some nice options with timescale for, for running that you don't have to do all this crazy configuration and make it accessible in that way. So one of the things I heard you say that actually I, I wasn't aware of is that I can commingle my data. So because it's just extensions to a Postgres database, I already have my data in Postgres. 
then adding timescale DB to it just gives me additional abilities for time series data in the database I'm already using with all my customer data. Is that right? That's right. When you start with timescale, nothing changes in the, in the sense that if you have existing relational tables, they're going to continue to exist. There's nothing that is different about them. The way that you make use of timescale DB is you create a table as you normally would, and then you upgrade it to what's called a hyper table. So a hyper table is kind of where all of the magic of, of timescale is going to start to take form. To create a hyper table, you need one, a table that exists, and two, the column that is going to be your time series column. So literally pointing at the timestamp. And let's, let's actually like kind of define what time series data is first. Number one, time series data is time centric, meaning that it's happening over time and you're usually recording some sort of snapshot of a value in time. It is append only, meaning that you're only adding to it. You're not going back in time and changing data. So uh, you're recording a value, you're adding it to the end, and then you're recording a new value, adding it to the end. Can you give an example of that? Like I can imagine that I'm recording that maybe someone viewed this page or this article or something like that. But what else, what other kinds of things might I want to record? You just gave a great example, which is application metrics. User did this action, record that. And that is immutable, that the fact that someone viewed this page at this point in time does not change. The example I gave in my talk that I was trying to make accessible was building a fitness tracker where, you know, right now I've got my whoop on and my whoop, it's tracking my skin temperature, it's tracking my blood oxygen saturation, and it's also tracking my heartbeat. So heartbeat is just very simple. It is a sample at a moment in time of my heartbeat. It happened at this very specific timestamp, and it occurred for me and not for someone else. So with a heartbeat, you can then say, okay, for each minute, count up the number of beats from that, you can get your beats per minute or, you know, how fast is your heart beating? To recap on, on the time series, it's time centric, it's append only, and historical data tends not to change. Now, this could be for other applications like financial data is the one that I think is most relevant to David and I, where you've got price fluctuations, interest rate fluctuations, volumes on different exchange fluctuations. You want to capture that. And that's a lot of data. You know, you can be processing millions of these ticks per second. And a time series database is going to help you with capturing that data, compressing that data, retaining data only for what's maybe more recent rather than older data, and then providing aggregation facilities on top. So the way that time scale is going to work is when you upgrade your regular table to a hyper table, it's going to impact how the query planner works. It's going to impact how you know, the types of functions that you could use on the table and unlock like some other features like continuous aggregates that we could get into. I really appreciate that explanation. Just helping me get my head around this. You give this example of like interest rates, right? And I know in the US, interest rates have been a big topic in media as they've been changing in the, the general markets and the Federal Reserve. And those interest rates, you imagine that the banks now have follow-on rates that they have and that this rate on this day at this time was this, and that is historically valuable to know that it was this and now it's this. And to be able to chart that and graph that, but also thinking of like the value of something over time, I see how that can be a really powerful thing. And I honestly don't think I've built a system where I was doing that before. And that's probably why I've never gone to a time series database, but that's really cool. So Cade, I'm curious about what kind of time series stuff you guys are doing that you've been looking into this database? We have a few situations we feel like we could probably make use of this. And one of them is we we keep track of real-time metrics that are happening in the system, like when a purchase comes through, if merchandise was purchased. So, you know, it has the time that it happened. It has, you know, the person that did it and it has like the value or the thing that happened, right? So it's kind of like a log, a real-time log of what's going on in the system. We've got People who are paying it forward to support shows. We have people who are investing, people who are pledging, which means they would invest should investment happen. And so we've got a bunch of these real-time events that are just flying through the system. We also love to aggregate all those events and show graphs and charts. We have real-time charts that are 
Like here's the last 30 minutes of things that have been flowing through the system in real time. We just use a good old gen server that sometimes runs out of memory because it just gets a little intense. And we thought to ourselves, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And then one day we stumbled on timescale DB and all the documentation looked great. We just have not actually dove in yet to actually implement and and make use of it. So one of the things you said there, and I, I want to come back to Dave and ask how this works, is like you said, oh, we, we want to track that this particular user or member made a purchase at this time for this amount of money, right? And then you might want to come back later and do some aggregate analysis and say, well, what else was happening at that time? Right. And that I can see that being possibly where some of these aggregated functions comes in. So Dave, am I thinking about that right? Yeah. So you, you probably have a time series of like user actions, right? What would be on the table? It would be a timestamp, that time centric piece. It'd be a foreign key to a user. So you're going to have a foreign key to your relational data. And then maybe, I don't know what the action was, maybe some metadata about it, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's cool about this is that you could say, here's a time range. In this time range, who are the users that purchased a product or, or, I don't know, made a transaction, whatever it is. You could then join in those users. You could also find out what are these users' preferences. I, I don't know, do some typical relational queries on top of that. What's more interesting though, is that a lot of times when you're we're working with time series like this, you're not necessarily caring about like specific user actions, but maybe you wanna know like, the volume of transactions in a particular period, or you want to know, I don't know, the highs and lows, some sort of average, rolling average, et cetera. What Timescale is going to do for you is provide some underlying primitives that are going to help make this really fast. And then some high level primitives that can help with the aggregation piece and keep it up to date always. So let's talk about the low level bit first. So we talked about hyper tables, which are regular tables that have been upgraded to this time-centric piece that gets query planner upgrades and whatnot. And what happens here is that when you write data into this table, rather than it just being a long list of rows as you normally would expect in a table, it converts them into what's called chunks. So a chunk is a aggregation, a batch of rows that have a, a specific start time and end time. And this is completely configurable. So when you create the table, you can create a policy, which is, this is how I want to chunk my data. Now from this, you can get a number of optimizations. So let's think about, I want to get the maximum number of transactions over this time period. When the query planner goes to make your query, it's going to look at that time range that you put in your query, and it can now omit entire chunks of data from the database. So think about like a specialized time-based index. It's now able to emit possibly gigabytes of data, terabytes of data at a time, because it knows the time range of, of the chunks here. This also enables compression features. So it can take all of the rows and combine each column into, rather than a bunch of rows, just an array of values. And then it can just do indexing into those arrays and also do a bunch of other compression type stuff. And then there's built on top of this is continuous aggregates. And this is where the really interesting stuff is. So once you've got this giant time series, you might be writing gigabytes, terabytes of data a day. As I said before, like you usually don't care about the very specific things. You're, you're looking at more of the bigger picture. And if we're going to continue to retain data over time, even if it's compressed, it could still get pretty big. Now, mind you, the compression features of timescale, you can get up to like 96% compression, which is, is crazy. Yeah. So if you have like terabyte of data, it's now going to be like four gigabytes, which is amazing. But over time, it could still get very, very, very big. So with this, you can set a retention policy, meaning, okay, I don't care about data that's three years old. It's no longer useful to us, or maybe it's only six months old. And so it can just omit chunks over time. It'll just delete them from your data set. When you have those time retention settings, will it actually delete the data so your database isn't continually growing like disk size? It will. So timescale ships with their, they have like a job system. So imagine it's like Obin running in Postgres, even though Obin does run in Postgres, but. <laughs> but inside the database. <laughs> yes. So they have a job framework that, that they've built that you can tap into if you want to. And this job framework 
is what we'll do the scheduling of, hey, after three days, look at everything that's older than six months and delete the data. So automated uh, utilities here. Now, getting back to these this aggregated information, let's just say that you always want to know like the top three biggest transactions over a time period. So maybe I want to know each week what were like the three biggest transactions. This is something that you would use a continuous aggregate for. So with a continuous aggregate, it's basically a materialized view plus a bunch of triggers. And what happens is when you write into the database, it's going to automatically fire the trigger that is going to update the materialized view so that you get that consistent snapshot of for your next read query, oh, here's the, the top three for last week. So what's really cool about this is you can actually create a, a continuous aggregate, which again is an advanced materialized view. And you can set retention policies and compression policies. And even if your data from the underlying hypertable is deleted, you can maintain the data in the continuous aggregate, meaning that you get that big picture snapshot without having to retain terabytes, petabytes of data if you have a very large data set. So incredibly powerful feature that I think uh, Cade can delete some gen servers once he gets it installed. <laughs> Away with the gen servers. <laughs> yeah, the, fa the fascinating thing about continuous aggregates too is like, I know it's like materialized views are great until you have to maintain them and keep them up to date, right? It's like, what if you could have a materialized view? All the benefits of like your data pre-calculated and not worry about keeping that materialized view up to date. And it's like, that's a continuous aggregate. And it's like, well, what if data's coming in and your continuous aggregate's not yet been updated? It's like, well, it's okay. They handle that for you. They will go look at the data that has been written that hasn't been aggregated yet, and they'll add it in there real time. So you always get like the latest snapshot of what's going on. The aggregations that haven't been pre-computed yet are just a sliver or a fraction of what had to happen. So it didn't have to go pre-aggregate terabytes of data. It just went and pre-aggregated the last two minutes because that hasn't been done yet. And so it's still fast, but it's also 100% real time and up to date. And 100% Postgres. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting to think about other timescale databases. Dave, you said it would be interesting to talk about why you chose Timescale DB. And I think we've already covered some of those reasons, but the alternative, like if I wanted to go with a different Timescale database, the biggest drawback I see immediately is that I don't have any of my data in there. So I have to come up with some other way of having foreign key kind of data that connects me to that other database. And then querying that and joining of getting the data that's relevant to what my, like my customer over here. I think that's where I see the problem. That's, I think, the biggest problem is that time series doesn't live in a silo. It's part of your, your data set. And so if you need to use a specialized time series database, you're now going to have to push that all into your application. And that's probably going to be slower. It's probably going to mean that your, your developers on your team are writing more code to get the job done. And frankly, you're probably going to have to be covering a much more uh, technologies. The great thing about Timescale is that it's all SQL. And anything that it provides specialized is just functions that you run in SQL. So it keeps the domain very small. So you could just think about the data as you would naturally. But you don't have to install new infrastructure. You don't need to learn a new query language. You don't need to do application joins. All of this is just happening inside of your database. Thinking outside of the box for a second, probably the biggest competitor to Timescale, other than InfluxDB, we'll get to that one in a second, is Excel. <laughs> Mind blown. Well, let's say you didn't have your time series database in there. You just have like, I don't know, just some normal tables with some, you know, with a, with a lot of dates in there. Sure, you could probably, you know, ignoring all the benefits that Timescale DB gives you, you probably have to go take that logic that like Timescale would be doing for you, the, the continuous aggregation, all that, all those kind of things, those functions. In, in another world without it, this would be business folks asking for data dumps, throwing it into an Excel sheet, throwing a pivot table on there, selecting the, you know, the most recent three months worth of data to get that kind of stuff, right? It, it's very manual work to do that. Some business folks are so good at that, that they like, they're, they're quick, they're quick at it, right? <laughs> they have their workflows. 
And those, those folks are cool. But if you can move that into like the database side, and that's what TimeScale is enabling here, then you get all of that in the same spot. Thinking about InfluxDB for a second, InfluxDB is another popular time series database, but it's NoSQL. It's a different you know way of storing storing data. And it's massively popular. But if you already have, like what most Elixir applications have, a Postgres database, that's then you're avoiding a whole, you know, infrastructure problem there. And like you said, Dave, you now you have two separate systems. You have to bind them together in application code. That's just much more to write. I, I don't know what other better fit there would be for Elixir applications at this point than timescale. But all right, so we, we've talked a lot about like why timescale is so awesome. Where does it stink? Where is it awful? What is bad about timescale? Because there's got to be the, those those little dark corners too. Everything is perfect, David. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be. Why are you bashing timescale, David? <laughs> no, so, okay. I think actually David Downer in the beginning <laughs> had, had actually highlighted the uh, the drawback, the biggest drawback, I think, to timescale, which is it is a shared object that needs to be installed your favorite managed database solutions like RDS and Google SQL, I forget the name of the the Google database managed solution, you can't use it. You're going to have to reach for other solutions. So this might be running in timescale cloud. Uh, That's what we do. It's pretty effective. There are downsides to that too. So right now we are running in fly.io. Hey, Mark. We're Connecting to Timescale over the open internet, which is a security issue. It's a dangerous place out there. It is a dangerous place. But I, I think the issue is not even so much security because it's not like we're storing user data in here. It's more that it's actually a latency issue. So because you're connecting over the open internet, you're no longer inside data centers where you have these optimized connections. And you could see latency spikes for up to a few seconds sometimes. And you have a lot of variance on that latency. So I think that's actually the biggest downside. If you're connecting from something like Heroku or or Fly.io, if you're in Google Cloud or in AWS, the solution is to to VPC peer between timescale and and your your compute. And if you can do that, then you'll be able to, to take advantage of all of that inside network optimization and latency reduction. If you work with AWS or, or Google or one of these other providers, Crunchy Data is another database provider that, that's interesting. You may be able to deploy it elsewhere. So you can run Postgres in Kubernetes. That has its own challenges. I think you would run it as a stateful set. You can run it on top of one of the other serverless database providers. I forget the one in, in AWS. David might remember. But that this is, I think, where timescale falls apart the most for, for me personally. Outside of that, I haven't seen too many other downsides. And I'm just being very honest. Like I, I've been trying to find where it falls apart. And it's generally just really good. Their documentation is top-notch to the same caliber that I hold Elixir documentation. Timescale is right there. Their support is excellent. I wasn't even a paying customer. They were helping me with you know, an issue I was having with with billing and provided answers immediately and then helped educate me, which I thought was was fantastic. So a lot of really big wins for Timescale. I want to I want to touch on that, like where you're talking about the, the company behind it, because Kate had mentioned this idea that that he'd already added Timescale DB to the database he has on fly. And I found the guide for it. And it's like, seriously, like just a couple like it's one line to say, enable this, and then you create the extensions. So I, I dropped a link to the docs for that. And like, there's no cost to me for doing that. So how how do I pay for Timescale DB? Is it because they can host it for me or I can pay for support? Or where is the, the company behind this? Yeah, so Timescale is, I think, a billion dollar valuation company. They're no small company. They provide managed solutions and enterprise support. And that is their their model for, for how they make money. So Timescale is completely open source. There are some premium features that I, I'm not sure on the licensing part of it, but I, I believe are all also open source just with a restricted license. So you can actually use their, I'm gonna, I might get this backwards. There's like a community edition and then there's just the regular Timescale edition. And I think you could actually sell Timescale services using that regular edition. 
and make money off of running timescale yourself. But what they provide is the, I want to run timescale in the cloud. I click a button, it creates a database. I've got you know nice observability features in there. I can scale it up and down. I can manage replication and durability and all of these things. They take care of that and they do it really nicely. I believe they run it inside of, of AWS or Google. So it's not like they're running their own infrastructure. And then they provide support. And I don't know their revenue, but they seem to be be doing decently well. And I appreciate that model. I like that you can try it out for free. You can play with it. You can self-host it. You can install it locally. Everything's great. If you want to use their cloud solution and get all the auto-managed observability stuff and pay a little extra for it, you can. If you're special and you run on fly, then you, you don't need to pay anything extra and you can just use it. And I, I, I appreciate those business models. Yeah, I appreciate it too. It's really nice to be able to take a peek at the code and, and make PRs and adjustments or even just try and get a little bit of a depth of understanding by looking at the code. So so that's really cool. It's written in Rust. So it's... Uh... <laughs> I did not know that. Okay, that's cool. I want to come back to your library. I want to understand what it's bringing to the table because you mentioned these other features that are unique to timescale DB, like hypertables and hyperfunctions. And I presume that your library can help with some of these additions that are beyond just what our Postgres adapter does. I think for people who are familiar with Ecto, you're familiar with the Ecto query module where you write this like kind of SQL-like syntax of keyword lists of arguments, or you could pipe into the macro functions. You get like this nice DSL for, for working with, with SQL. Timescale, you're going to need to set it up initially. So create an extension. You're going to want to use probably some of what they're what's called hyper functions, which are the functions that operate on time series data. So a very simple one is the last hyper function, where you say in this table, give me the last value from this column. So if I wanted to know who made the last transaction, I would use that. And to do that in Ecto, you would need to use what's called an Ecto fragment which is you put a string in wrapped in this fragment function and you put question marks and then the question marks inject whatever data you have and escape it into the query. And this is fine, but it's not so ergonomic. It like really stands out in, in your queries. And just in terms of like documentation and knowing what's available, it's, it's not my favorite thing to be jumping between Ecto documentation and timescale documentation. I, I like the pro tip. If you hit G in any Elixir hex docs, you could jump to another library. And I use that all the time for just jumping around documentation. And so I think the major motivator for me was I wanted that. I wanted that Elixir documentation so that I could look up and see these are the hyper functions available to me. This is how I use them. This is the difference between these particular functions. This is how I set up a continuous aggregate. And really what the timescale library is, is just a little bit of syntactic sugar, but mostly documentation, honestly, for, for dealing with working with timescale. So it's going to make it so that writing timescale hyperfunctions and creating tables and initializing continuous aggregates are all the same as you would in your regular Ecto SQL. So you don't need any special setup. You don't need anything else. You're just going to do import timescale.query, I believe is is the, or maybe it's that hyperfunctions. And you could start using hyperfunctions right inside of your SQL, assuming that you have a hypertable. If people are wanting to start playing with timescale and your library in particular, how do they get started with that? Like, do they just install this on a database? And then like, there's a lot to learn. Like for me coming new to this, Cade's already more versed in this than I am. How do, how can I start to play with this? A goal of the timescale library that I created was to help educate people on how to use it and to, to get started. So if you go to the timescale hex docs, you're going to find a guide for intro to timescale DB. And that's a live book that you can deploy or run locally. You can run through an example of this heartbeat tracker application that I was talking about. You'll build a hyper table. You'll aggregate data. You'll actually be able to impute missing data with a last observation carry forward, something we haven't talked about, you'll be able to build an, a continuous aggregate all in this live book. So I think it's a really good place to get started. And then from there, you could use 
the depth of documentation in the timescale DB docs. I just noticed on the library, it's still marked as alpha. What do you have for future plans? When do you feel like this is something that's ready for people? The reason it's an alpha is that it doesn't have the coverage of the timescale API that I think is like a good base set to work off of. However, for what we have, it is completely stable. At Bifo, we're using it in production flawlessly with no issues. So it's ready to be used right now, but it might not have all of the features that you might want to use. So with that being said, we have a long list of issues that outline a lot of these features. We have a timescale Slack channel in the Elixir Slack. We have a bunch of members across the community who have already contributed to the timescale library, and we'd love for you to help. As I mentioned, it's just syntactic sugar, really. So getting involved and, and contributing is not going to be so difficult. So we'd love for you to get involved. And I think once we hit that critical mass, we can release a, a point release and we'll think about like a 1.0 release beyond that. But for now, it's ready to use today and we'd love your help to to improve it. And if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? So I'm pretty active on Twitter for as long as it, it continues to exist. So I'm uh, DavyDog187 on Twitter and uh, I haven't created a Mastodon yet, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see how that shakes out. That's the best place. You can find me on the Lixir Slack, the same name or LinkedIn or otherwise. If you're in the New York City area, always love to, to meet up with Lixir folks and, and chat. Anything else to share? Well, I think we have an exciting announcement. So around the time that this podcast episode is going to come out, we should have made public that we bought a newsletter called Milk Road. So the Milk Road is a daily crypto newsletter that tries to be your friend who's kind of keeping you up to date on what's happening in the space, kind of at like a layman's easy to understand level. And it's a short read, only like three to five minutes. So we're rebranding DeFiRate.com, which is our flagship website under Milk Road. And with that, we are hiring a front-end developer. So if you're listening to this Elixir podcast and maybe got here by accident and you're actually a React developer, <laughs> you could come and work with, with David and I on what I think is a really fun product and, and a really cool small team. We you know, love people who, who want to work full stack, who want to work all the way from CSS on the front end all the way back to, to timescale. So if that's you and you're excited about what we talked about and aren't afraid to, you know, be in the crypto domain. We, we'd love to, to chat. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dave, for coming on and visiting with us and helping me get a better sense of Timescale DB and why I might want to use that in my projects. And really, honestly, as we were talking about it, I started to think like, wow, I, I can really see how a lot of these little signals is the way I think of it. It's like these little signals or events and aggregating those over time would be really interesting and give a lot more insight than just like, this is the last time this thing was updated and losing the history of, there were many different updates to it. I think that's really cool and uh, something I definitely want to check out. Yeah, I, I have to admit that like, there's so many more like scenarios in our typical developer life, I think, that fit a time series database. It's just we don't go out of the way to go set up all that uh, extra infrastructure, right? So this puts it in reach. Yeah, like events. I think Elixir developers tend to think of like the data first and data usually comes in in the, you know, in the form of events. That's just maybe the way we think. So yeah, time scale is a good fit for that stuff. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.